This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that doesn't even take a break for Easter. That's right, we're back with a special remote bonus mailbag episode edition of the podcast. We being me, Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, my partner in crime, Dr. Nirban Marty. How are you, Doc? Good day, Captain. How are you? We are Zooming. We are Zooming. We're using Zoom. So again, apologies as per Friday for any audio issues. I think we got through Friday's one pretty much okay, mate. I haven't heard it back yet, but um, it seemed to go okay. Yeah, I think it went well. I think it went well. There were a couple of spots maybe where the audio went a little weak, but that's fine. That's hope. We'll be I'm hopefully. sure. I'm sure our wonderful listeners will give us a little bit of a pass on the uh, the simple reality of what social uh, distancing requires. Oh, social networking, social distancing requires of us these days, mate. Have you? Well, I, I, I won't pretend with the fix that we're recording this on Sunday. We're recording this in advance of Sunday, but I figure you're going to get stuck into the Easter eggs, are you? Oh well, that's a good question. I have to go buy some Easter eggs, right? Actually, me too. After this, I might have to duck up the shop. I haven't watched all this news because I haven't got her Easter eggs yet. Yeah, so that's exactly what came to my mind is, you know, I haven't actually been to the shop. (laughs) (laughs) Time to to shift our game, I think. Yeah, but nowadays going to the shops is a lot of game, right? It's a lot of, you know, planning. You know, you have to. Yeah. (laughs) So. Full full hazmat suit, the whole box and dice. All right, mate. Let, let's get on with our special mailbag edition. We've got heaps of good questions, mostly from Instagram, which I know you're super excited about. I love it. <laughs> All right. First question, for, let's, get, let's get straight into it. Save Dr. Save Dr. Grief. First question is from Matt. Uh, Matt's asking questions about growth and quality, mate. And I thought in this particular environment, you had some comments about that on Friday, but let's, let's go to Matt's question. He says, guys, would you look at a good business by the day-to-day operations they do and the room for growth? Or... Do you look at balance sheets and past income statements to give you an indication that it's a good company and it will be good for the long term? For example, Tesla had a revolutionary idea of being completely electric, so I invest because of its day-to-day operations. But the financial figures show us they might still be in debt. So for argument's sake, would you invest based on the idea or on the financial statements? Thank you in advance. I know I bombarded you, but you guys are gentlemen. Thank you again. All right, Doc, so let, let's try not to get down the Tesla rabbit hole specifically, though feel free to use it as, a, uh, as, as an example. But thinking about the kind of combination of the future prospects and the current health plus the past performance, how do you kind of weigh those three individual bits up? The current kind of status, the future potential, and the past success when you're thinking about making an investment? Yeah, so that's a very interesting question. I mean, the past... Um Past performance is sort of an indicator of, you know, past performance, not a direct indicator of what's going to happen in the future, right? Past performance, not an indicator of the future. But past performance can tell you something about how the company operates, um, you know, its ability to, you know, grow, its ability to innovate and things like that. So you can can take some lessons Mm. out of that. Um, It gives you some directional idea, right? Um, future really is, I mean, future is really hard, right? It depends on if you, if you have, uh, like if, you, if you're selling travel services, then you're, well, it's a, it's a service that everybody needs <laughs> like this. So, so How you can possibly make, go badly. What can possibly, so you can make some projections, right? So in some cases you can make projections, relatively straightforward. Um, in some cases you have to, you know, extend the bow a little bit further because you don't really know what the future products are or services are. And so there's a little bit of a leap of faith there. Um, so you have to take, you have to look at what the company is doing, what it's trying to do. Think about market opportunities and then essentially come to some estimate of what the growths are. So that's sort of roughly uh, what I, I separate these companies into roughly two buckets, right? You know, if, if you had an up and coming innovative company, then you, you know, the growth can be large, but it's going to be off a smaller base. You're probably going to make market share. Uh, but there's a lot more uncertainty. So you have to account for that uncertainty. If you are an established company growing, you know, selling groceries, for example, then you know sort of what the trajectory for that is and you can again make some assumptions about that. So that's the the future aspect of it. Um, With respect to the balance sheet, um, it's a mixed bag. So I I do look at the balance sheet in the sense that I look at the, you know, sort of the cash, the cash flows and, you know, how much are you burning, for example, every half or every quarter or every year. That's important because, again, if something happens, 
where uh, you know your cash flow situation is not as normal, then you know you you know do you have enough uh, sustenance capability, right? That's 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 specifically uh, question with respect to so yeah. So I think those are those are sort of you know you look at the balance sheet to say look at staying power you look at the income statement to see how much of these the earnings power I guess or the you know the cash flows coming in you want to know the yeah and and, and then you want to have some assumptions about so it's it's a whole bunch of different things um, I would say that you can't get like I mean the the balance sheets are very important because you know they're like they're like the the base truth. Right for every, you know every so often the company is basically showing you the base truth, mm-hmm. but it shows you the base truth of what has happened up until now and the current position. <laughs> That's right. right. <laughs> so you're not you, you can't invest for the future based on just the base truth. The base truth gives you okay. This is what. Is the base truth so that that's that's where you know so you, you, there's no sure thing in investing right you invest in something and uh, there's a probability that it's not going to work out right if it's going to work out then well everybody would be investing and then there will be no money to be made because everything would be perfectly priced so so there's that side uh, so there's the un- you have to embrace the uncertainty is basically what I'm trying to say um, yeah with respect to Tesla. The yes, there's debt. So there's what you know, fourteen billion dollars of debt. Some of that is convertible debt, which basically means that they can turn into shares if the share price is above a certain level, and it's got six or seven or eight billion in cash. It's got probably eight, eight plus billion in cash. So I mean, for a for a company with a, a manufacturing company, that's actually not a lot of debt. Um, and in, you know, if you think about a manufacturing company, then the major cost is in in setting up plants and making plant modifications, right? But if Things are shut down. You're not really, you know, making those modifications. You're not running that. So a lot of variable costs that basically can disappear once the fixed cost has been already in place. So um, yeah, so it looks large and relative to other auto comp- companies, actually, <clears throat> it's actually relatively small. You know, most automotive companies will have billions and billions and you know tens, hundreds of billions of dollars of debt. Um, so yeah, so Tesla is really different to that sense. You know, it, it has debt compared to, you know, a traditional tech company. Tech companies typically don't have that kind of debt to uh, cash ratio, but yeah, this is pretty light debt in that sense. Yeah, often technologies don't need to, right? Because they simply don't have to buy or build things in the same way that a manufacturing yeah. company would need to. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So if you don't need to buy land and huge amounts of land. Right, and, right, yeah, exactly, exactly. If you buy equipment in it, you, you know, basically have nowhere to spend that capital, so you don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And nice, I'm going to give my thoughts very quickly, mate. I, I, I agree with everything you've said. Um, Matt, I think, so look, Past performance is, as Doc says, no guarantee, but it does give you some sense of a company's ability to do its business. And I'm deliberately being vague about that because I won't say necessarily making profit. Tesla, I think, is now profitable, or at least cash flow positive, but hasn't been for a very, very long time. But that would be the wrong lens to use for Tesla's track record thus far, right? Is it able to manufacture vehicles? Is it able to deliver them? Is it able to gain consumer support, trust, um, in some cases, even repeat purchase, believe it or not, there are some people who've bought more than one Tesla already. Um, those things in terms of track record are more important in this context. Now, more risky, of course, because there's no revenue or profits, or at least, sorry, there's revenue but no profits. More risky than a company that's making a lot of profits. So it's not to say you should necessarily always see them as the same thing, but past performance isn't just how much profit have they made year on year. And again, the doc says, if it's all, if it's all super estimable by the market, how's that for a word, then the share should be reasonably fairly priced. So to some degree, you have to take a different view to the market on something. It can be the value, it can be the rate of return, it can be the growth rate, it can be something else, but you have to have a different view. So if all it was, I think Warren Buffett said, if history was all that mattered, then the richest people in the world would be librarians. Um, you know, it, it's that kind of idea. You need to be able to look forward somehow. Um, again, Doc's point our balance sheet is right. And frankly, we're all more mindful of the balance sheet than I think we, any of us were <laughs> three, four months ago because um, we, we are all of a sudden being reminded very clearly of what um, can happen if you run out of cash, particularly when revenues start to dry up. So there's, there's, there's all those really important things. I think the idea itself, if it's just an idea, that's at the super risky end of the spectrum. If it's like, hey, we might be able to come up with this great new thing, um, Tesla has been successful. Another electric car company may not have been. Both have the same idea. The execution matters. The people behind it matter. So you can't just do the idea, but the big gains do come from investing early in some of those riskier places. And I think Doc's own service extreme opportunities, but certainly investing in general kind of requires a portfolio approach, right? And that's when you do want to have a look at some of those early successes, early track records, early um, and and the, and the idea absolutely as well. It needs to be something that has potential, that has market size and, and room to grow. 
I, 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 I feel like I'm kind of, we're both giving you half an answer that, or at least, you know, both the, on one hand, on the other hand, kind of answer, uh, but it has to be both, mate. If you're just going to buy balance sheets, then those should be in theory perfectly priced or, or almost perfectly priced most of the time. Um, the gains are going to come from someone with a variant perception, a different view, and the different view often comes from different aspects of what you expect the future to look like. How's that, Doc? Anything to add? No, I mean, I mean, I, th- I think that's perfect. Actually, there's an interesting thing. Maybe sometimes what happens if you have a too perfect a balance sheet, you like, you know, for example, if you have a balance sheet with a lot of cash, the actual market might discount that because the cash is just sitting yes. there doing nothing, right? So, uh, so that there's that that happened too, and you can then yeah. say that yeah. well, I'm going to take a variant perception that that cash is important, and maybe that gets priced at some point as cash becomes, you know, king. Uh, right, right, right. So, so, a variant perception is actually the way to think about it, and you know, again. Yeah, you have to. You have. You can't just assume that one company. You have to. You know, it's. it's a, yeah, you have to have multiple eggs in the basket, so to speak. I will say too on on variant perceptions and, and thinking about that, it, it's something we say regularly, mate. But it's worth repeating just because we've got some new listeners or even existing listeners who who won't hurt from hearing a second or third time. Is if you're going to take a variant perception, you need to be prepared a to be wrong, and b for the market to disagree with you for quite a long time. Yeah, you know, a variant perception says. What you're literally saying is, hey, market as a whole, I think you're wrong about this company. And then you buy the shares. Now, the market is all of a sudden going to realize just because you bought the shares, oh, oh that's right. You know, we, we were wrong after all. Watch, up goes the share price. You know, at some point, the, the journey to being eventually proven right has to, by definition, if you're disagreeing with the market, start with most of the market participants by, by weight of dollars disagreeing with you. And so you just need to think about that as you buy shares. They won't necessarily go up in a straight line. They won't necessarily go up even straight away. They can take a while. A couple of our early recommendations at ShareAdvisor, a focus on what I want to say in particular, sat doing nothing for about two years at $2. And then eventually went to seven. Um, but that was, a, that was a, you know, it was a slow old kickoff because the market simply didn't realize the value that we thought we saw. That value was proven out of the end, which we were pretty happy to see. But it took a while for the market to kind of come around to our way of thinking. Cool. Next question comes from Matt, Doc, and uh, I'm going to read this out exactly as it's written because there's a little sting in the tail. Um, he says, Jets, firstly, love the pod. It's my ritual to listen whilst walking along the beach on a Saturday morning. Matt, I assume that's your hour of exercise, mate, so just, uh, just, just make sure it's not more than an hour uh, in this era of social distancing. My partner and I are lucky to have saved up nearly enough for a 20% house deposit. Well done. And we both invest a little each separately from that deposit. I always intend to keep my shares long-term, but now I'm considering putting a chunk of that deposit into the market, but only for a year, hoping to catch some upside from the current slump. I understand you can't tell me what to do, but what would you do in similar circumstances? Hashtag full on, hashtag get Doc on Insta. Love it, Matt. Well done. All right, Doc. Uh, Got some cash. Going to buy a house. Wants to put it in the market for 12 months to try and catch the upswing. We can't tell Matt what he should do, but what would you do? No, so I, I would like if there's money set aside for buying a house, for example, I would just keep it set aside for buying a house. Maybe the the most I would do is put it into, um, you know, a high interest account. For example, if you know if there is such a thing these days as a high interest account, <laughs> it's all relative now, right? <laughs> it's all relative now. So I, I you know, I put, you know, put it into something that where if, if there's a house that I think you want to buy or I want to buy, I. I would just do that. The, the reason behind that is that, you know, well, the market has dropped, let's say 25, 30%. There's no, I can't guarantee, nobody can guarantee that it's not going to drop another 25%. So you could put that deposit there and then see that, you know, the thing drop another 25% before that, you know, and, and then it might go back up. But in the meantime, maybe the house that you want to buy is also available for cheap and you can't buy it. That's right. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, like, again, market, you really need to take a minimum three, you know, preferably five, even better, 10-year view. You know, yeah. uh, I basically assume that any money I put in the market, you know, I just don't need it for 10 years. And there might be unforeseen circumstances in which I might need it. But my my base case is just assumed that I don't need it for a decade. So, um, yeah, like, but I, I would say minimum three. Five is really a good spot. Like, I mean, I feel really good about a five-year horizon so you know i wouldn't you know that's my take i wouldn't actually do it but different people do different things yep i i can only agree with doc um i you know we don't know how far the market goes down we don't know how long it takes to recover 
those are things that if you had a property in mind, A, you might miss out on the property you want. B, by the time you get the money back, the property might have gone up by more than the money you made anyway. So particularly on a, on a, on a kind of a, a leverage basis, so you're, gonna, you're borrowing 80% of the house price. Um, if that house price goes up by more than you make on your deposit, then you actually might be going backwards even though you make money, which is, sounds like a strange idea. But you end up paying more for the house. Your deposit doesn't work for you. If, to Doc's point, if, if someone said to me, look, I want to put my house deposit in the market and I don't care when I buy, uh, it's going to be sometime after five years probably. And, you know, is that the best place for my long-term savings? I actually think that's a good place to put it. As long as you are specifically saying, I don't want to buy for five years. Now, if the market doubles in a year and you want to take it out and buy something, that's different. That's a different question, right? There's no reason you can't be opportunistic with selling if the opportunity presents itself. But trying to put the money in the market for a year, um, it let's call it 100 grand. Maybe it's worth 120, maybe it's worth 80 in 12 months time. Uh, maybe it takes, you know, three years to get back to 100. Maybe that in the same time, the house prices go up 15%. It's just very rarely worth it trying to game the system. I know, I feel the pain of not getting very much return on your cash. Like having cash earning nothing is just really, really, really painful when you know the market is likely to give you more. Uh, but particularly with house prices, particularly because they're leveraged investments, the chance that the weight costs you more than you are prepared to pay is higher than I think you should take. And it's, you know, yeah, Warren Buffett uses a line. It's not exactly applicable, but it's why would you why would you bet what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need? And in this case, you have a certain amount of cash. It is locked in as that amount of cash. You can use that for whatever you want to use it for while you add to it to, to build your deposit. Um, again, I'm a shares guy. I like the compound value of shares over the super long-term, as Doc said. 12 months is just not enough in my book. Yeah, All right, mate. Let's move on to a question. We've got a three-part question from Lockie. Uh, Lockie actually started his, his, his Instagram post by saying, I have two questions, but then three turned up. So we'll, we'll, we'll go with three. Uh, he says, hey, Scott and Doc, if this makes its way to the podcast, please only use my first name, Lockie. Well, we've done that. So we've achieved that aim. Hope you both, your families and the team that helped make your wonderful podcast are well during this time. We are. And we hope our good friends at Triple M are doing well. We're not seeing them at the moment, but uh, we, trust we trust they're doing well too. Uh, in case calling your podcast was enough of a compliment, the banter and general advice and thoughts you guys give is really outstanding. I recommended your podcast to my girlfriend as I'm wanting her to get started with investing. Excellent, Lockie. Good man. All right. I have two questions if I may be so lucky. I'm 24 and have started building a share portfolio and long-term savings. I consider these my two main assets. My first question is in relation to the long-term savings. In past podcasts, you've generally said don't invest if you'll need the money in five years, we've already answered that. But how much savings should you have in an emergency fund or for long-term savings? At the moment, I would have about six months worth of expenses and plan to build it up to 12 months uh, and so on in six-month increments. So let's do that one first, mate. Uh, we absolutely are saying don't invest. We've just said that if, in five years. But how much cash, how many months worth of cash do you think someone should have in their rainy day fund, mate? Well, my okay. So this, I think this, this the problem with this one is again, it's a little bit of a personal thing. Um, you know, I think it depends. I think three months is really crucial or essential. Six yep. months is good. A year is very good. You know, my own preference is to have like a year. Now, I, I mean, I understand you know, the way I understand that if you keep a year's worth of money, that and and when I say years worth of uh, of um, of spending, I don't mean a year's worth of spending at uh, at a normal rate. What I mean is a year's worth of spending of essentials, yeah. right? So, you know, if so, so that's different from what you would spend normally. Um, so I feel comfortable with a year, uh, but six months is very good. And three months in my view is, is sort of uh, bare essential. That's how I look at it. Um, after a year though, I, I don't think, I mean, you know, you can continue doing this and, you know, but then you would never be investing. So, you know, I think a year is a, is a good enough point for me. And I stop at that point. Um, yeah, that's how I look at it at least. Yep. Could agree more. I think that's exactly right. I think more than a year is probably, it's hard, right? It's a bit like that we talked about on, on Friday, the, the kind of how much cash a company should hold just in case things go wrong. You could say two years, five years, 10 years. I mean, as you say, it's, there's no end point, right? If you never had to work again in your life, you'd have enough savings, but then the time it takes to get there and the return you're getting on that is, is, is nothing. I think 12 months, unless lucky, unless you're in, a, in or anyone listening, unless you're in an industry or a job where you're very likely out of work for more than that period of time, and that's really what we're talking about, um, I don't see any need for more than 12 months. I, just, I can't imagine a scenario where you couldn't get work of some description, even if it's not the perfect job, at some point inside 12 months. So the stuff outside 12, probably best invested. All right, part two. Uh, 
Uh, I understand it's also important to have cash that you can deploy when there are really good opportunities. At the moment, I set aside a bit of my paycheck to build up my savings, but also to dollar cost average into ETFs each few months. So I'm trying to do both at the same time. For someone that is younger than most, thank you, Lockie. You know, he does say in brackets, you are both still young, definitely young at heart. You're sucking up to us, basically. Um, what is a general guide as to how much savings you should have and how should that be proportioned to your investment in equities? I think given my age, it's best to be fully invested and have dividends reinvest. So the magic of compound is automated and supercharged. What do you reckon, mate? Oof, that's a, that's a lot, of, lot of questions. So, I mean, the way I understood that question is, is asking how much of um, how much of the money should he be investing, right? And how much should yeah. he have in cash as a portfolio? Correct. Yeah. So, like, I'll answer uh, specifically what of uh, sort of how I would manage it or how I again. I think the the model would vary from person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, now, many people would have assets beside um, like shares. Majority of my wow. assets and shares. Now, you know, you could have other things. You could have property investment. You could have commercial investment and things like that. Some people even have bonds. I don't know why, but, uh, you know, you could have <laughs> bonds. Uh, so there, there are various reasons, you know, uh, various types of assets. But, you know, in terms of the share portfolio, and I can talk to that a little bit more in detail, um, the way I typically, you know, including portfolios, for example, that I run for some monthly full, um, my preference is to have about 10% or so cash. Right, and usually the sort of the the um, the rule rule of thumb that I use is you know between sort of five to fifteen percent is the amount of cash you want to have. That's a wide range. The more cash you have, the more of it is a drag on your portfolio. The less cash you have, the better it is in terms of you know on a normal time. On the other hand, if you and I'll caveat that because some of the portfolios, for example, that I, I, we run for the Motley Fool, they have got a committed amount of capital available at any given point in time, right? Which basically means that there's no new capital coming in. Now, if you have no new capital coming in, then you have to manage your existing investments and then, you know, sort of five to 15 is a good rule. Now, if you have cash coming in, then you do have a regular flow of funds. And then that's kind of different because then you can actually dollar cost average over time. So I think context actually really matters um, now, it, now we sort of have, in, in, a, in a personal circumstance, we have cash coming in. So I still, you know, try to maintain like between five and 10. I don't go above 10 in terms of cash. I have some cash uh, available in the portfolio. And then, of course, you know, there are opportunities to withdraw cash if necessary from other things like, you know, from the offset account or, you know, redraw from the home loan and things like that if, you know, if there's, if there's like, you know, burning opportunity somewhere. So, um yeah, it's, it's a fuzzy answer necessarily because there's, again, no perfect answer for this. But in a portfolio context, I would say between 5 and 15 sort of is a, is a range. And then you kind of got to do what you think you're comfortable with and how you want to deploy. But if you have money coming in regularly, then you can dollar cost average. And then it reduces the amount of cash you really need to maintain to take advantage of. Love it, Doc. I'm not going to add much more to that other than I'm slightly more fully invested than you most of the time. I, I would happily have no cash available and just be all in shares. Um, it means my falls are bigger on day or months like, like March. Um, but hopefully also means that over time, because shares got more than they go down, I'm harnessing more of that compound return. But it's a, it's a personal choice. It's a, it's a psychological choice and preference as to how you want to be as an investor. Um, I think that's perfectly fine. I love your point, mate, about the, the regular contributions actually being a version of cash availability. I think that's a really, really important point. If you've not got to fix some and you know you're going to be contributing to an investment account of once or another every month or every fortnight or whatever it is, um, then to some degree you are, over, over, over a year or over a couple of years, you're adding meaningful amounts of cash to that portfolio anyway, particularly when you're early, young like Lockie is. Um, the amount he's adding is probably going to be reasonably large proportional to what he's actually got invested. Um, I would say even more so that that's a case of being fully invested. Yeah. Uh, last last part of his question, part three. In do- I'm dollar cost averaging into ETFs using Comsec Pocket and buying the NASDAQ 100 ETF, the code that is NDQ here in Australia. I like it because the rest of my portfolio is in Comsec, so it mixes well, and I already have the broker account set up. I recently saw Vanguard is opening its own investor account, which has no brokerage fees when buying their ETFs, but they take a very small management fee. I understand fees are the devil of investing, and you should only pay for them when they provide a benefit. As it's a fee on the account holdings, capped at 600 bucks a year, I'm skeptical as to whether it's worth the free brokerage. 
I was also thinking of opening a self-wealth account given uh, it's super cheap brokerage and no account fees. Given my holdings will start relatively small and build up over time, is the Vanguard product worth the free brokerage and fees? And is there any problem with having heaps of different broker accounts? Two by two Comsec, one self worth, one Vanguard, and then use whichever has the cheapest brokerage for the trade. All right, mate. So uh, ETF investing, a whole lot of different options. What's your thoughts on that one? Yeah, I'll take the easier one first about the multiple broker account. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. Uh, everybody lands up having multiple broker accounts. There's no harm with that. It's just sometimes you can even forget that you have multiple broker accounts. It's, it's very easy to forget about these things. Um, yeah. It's just like opening bank accounts, right? So uh, over time, my view is that it's better to have the few that you actually want to use than to have a bunch of others. But yeah, like, I mean, horses for the courses sort of thing. Um, in terms of... Uh, ETF and fees, like absolutely, if you're buying in indices, uh, then what you want to do is you want to buy, you want to minimize fees as much as you can. Now, of course, that that means that you're going to miss out on a certain index, then that's not good. So you want to invest in the index you want to invest, so you know you probably have to just pay the fees for that. Now, that said, most of the big indexes that exist today, like, you know, the, whether it's like the... Um, all World X Australia, or whether it is like an S&P 500 or is the NASDAQ 100, all of them have pretty low fees right now. Like, I mean, they're not substantial. Uh, many of them are not as cheap as Vanguard, so I, I get the appeal. Um, yeah, so I would, I mean, if, so if, uh, let me answer it this way. If there is a Vanguard equivalent NASDAQ 100, and that is basically almost fee-free, then I'll take the fee-free option because it's, you know, an index is an index. It's going to replicate an ETF, replicating an index. It's going to give you the index returns if it is doing the right thing. So therefore paying lower fees means you're going to get higher returns, right? Uh, but if there is no option, if I wanted to buy NASDAQ 100 and Vanguard did not give me that option, then I would not make the fee, I would not let the fee tail basically, you know, tell me what not to do, right? So as long as there are existing Equivalent options, if there are equivalent options, then I will take a lower fee, but if there is no equivalent option, then I will, um, yeah, I will go for the, um, the one I want to invest in. Like that, mate. Uh, I can't disagree with any of that. I think multiple brokerage accounts, the only thing is just being careful of any um, fees that are, that are uh, based on the amount of assets under management or inactivity fees. Um, I think a couple of brokers have the charge inactivity fees. In other words, if you don't use them to trade, they whack you for just hanging around, uh, which is, I think, about the worst thing I think I've ever seen um, from, from a uh, uh, from a business like that. I think it's a terrible, terrible thing to do, but it is what it is. Um, all right, so there's that. Um, I think the look from a from a Vanguard perspective, a Vanguard is the gold standard for um, fees, particularly because it's a not for profit. In fact, it's owned by the fund owners themselves, the fund investors themselves. That generally puts you at the best place to assume that you'll always be in the best best possible fee Vanguard can pass on. Doesn't mean it's always going to be the cheapest because there are others that might be have just simply more scale and can pass on lower fees. But if you're going to kind of hoist or you hit your hit your wagon to one fund manager, the one who's incentivized to keep the fees lowest possible rather than make money. And look, we're all for making money. We're, we're capitalists at heart. But when it comes to the fees we pay, I'm talking about I'd rather make money than pay money. And so if you can find the lowest fee one, again, as Doc's already said, we'd be in line with the um, investment product you're looking for in the first place. There's no point buying an inferior uh, product just to save some money on fees. So I completely agree there. I think the, the account fees at Vanguard is interesting. I, I don't... I don't love that, I have to say. And so I probably would, I think, um, use a broker to buy the Vanguard ETF using the broker's website because you avoid that management fee. Um, that being said, the cap is worth something. So at some point, the cap becomes, hopefully, as you add more to your investment account, less and less important. But if you're starting with you know, a few grand or 10 grand, whatever it is, you don't want to be paying fees unnecessarily. And I don't really see a need for that. So I don't love that. Um, the only thing I would say for what it's worth is the brokerage is, is free. I think you've already mentioned that on the on the Vanguard ETF through Vanguard Personal Investor. So you are kind of, if you're going to trade once a month and buy more of that, for example, that might be, you know, a dozen trades at 20 bucks. It starts to get closer to the, the management fee anyway. And if, so for smaller balances, you actually might be better off, ironically, um, paying the uh, pay, paying the fee <laughs> and getting cheap brokerage if you're going to buy regularly um, rather than the other way around. Any more on that, mate? No, sir. I think that's good. Beauty. 
Lockie finishes off. Thanks as always for your amazing work. Genuinely, it is a commendable job you both do. I recommend your podcast because it is no BS, great foundation principles, and such good grounding in the world of investing. You keep it simple, and there is so much value in that. He says, P.S., I heard a great saying the other day about trying to pick the bottom. I'm not going to share that saying with our listeners, but what I will say is his next point, which is dollar cost average and let compound interest do its thing. Full on. And we couldn't agree more, Lockie. Thank you for the questions, mate. All right, Doc. Next one comes from Fletch. And Fletch says, hi, Captain and Doc. Two months ago, I purchased shares in Treasury Wines, which of course has now been hammered like everything else. Over the last few weeks, I've been pessimistic on Treasury's ability to perform or even not be adversely affected during this virus pandemic and the inevitable recession to follow. I was considering cutting my losses, but I've been reading reports in the media about the dramatic increase in alcohol sales due to lockdown, both here and in the US. I'd greatly appreciate your thoughts and opinions on how you think these circumstances would affect Treasury and how they were likely fare through recessionary conditions. Would you share your thoughts in your next podcast? We will. Regards, Fletcher from Hobart. Nice to have a listener from the Apple Isle, the uh, the quarantined Apple Isle, as we know. Well, obviously, that's quarantine these days. But uh, hopefully, uh, you guys are keeping safe down there and enjoying lovely Tasmania. I've only been there once, Doc, but I'm overdue for a visit back. We were going to go for a visit this year, funnily enough. We won't be doing that now. Um, but I'm overdue for a visit back to, Fl- to, to Hobart. Maybe, maybe I'll buy a Fletcher beer. We'll see. Mate, what do you think? Treasury wines particularly in the context of a pandemic, will people be drinking more or less or about the same? I was going to say, uh, you should have a go, but I'll, I'll give my view. <laughs> uh, um, I, I, well, here's the, here's the funny thing, right? If, if people are locked at home, um, I heard that Dan Murphy was doing roaring business. <laughs> Apparently so. Apparently so. so. I mean, if, if you know, I guess if you're stuck at home and you know you have a home party, <laughs> Uh, we actually did one with our friends. We did we did a FaceTime party where we all opened our own little drinks. Had some oh, that's cool. Nice one. And, you know, and everybody else did the same thing, and we could yeah, have yeah. a you know, FaceTime group party. So I mean, those those things are can be done. And so I think a lot of other people are probably you know drinking wine and having fun. So uh, it's yeah, it's 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 a funny thing. I don't know. I don't know how demand is affected because they're not selling those wines or. Um, in restaurants, for example, or yeah. restaurants are yep. ordering, but then they probably get compensated to some extent by people buying at home. So, but yeah, you you recommend uh, Treasury in your service. I'll let you talk to it. Thank you, mate. Um, yeah, look, it's it's a buy recommendation as I own shares myself, by the way. So, full disclosure on that one. Um, it's a, so it's an interesting question, and, and we should say, by the way, mate, literally as we're recording this, Vanguard, uh, Vanguard, Treasury have today announced plans to look at spinning off the Penfolds brand from the rest of the treasury business. And the shares are up on the, as a result on that. So um, a little bit of extra kind of spice to the, to the answer. I won't talk to that particularly because it's one of those, maybe possibly we'll look into it kind of plans, but certainly the market seems to like the idea. Um, here's the thing we know in normal recessions and, and every recession is kind of different. So you don't want to, don't extrapolate too much. That being said, the weight of history is also worth keeping in mind. We know from most recessions in the past that, um, alcohol and gambling don't change and sometimes increase. Um, it's the affordable luxury. It's the ticket to freedom. It's the, you know, I guess if I'm not going out and partying and buying new clothes or whatever, at least I'll have a glass of wine or a beer or, or you know, a glass of scotch. So we know that's always been true in the past. Now, I will say to Doc's point, eating out goes to zero as opposed to just declining somewhat in a recession. So there is a, there is a, you know, 100 to zero kind of outcome in restaurants and, and cafes and licensed cafes anyway, that will impact treasuries demand in what they call the on-premise trade. In other words, drinking at the, at the venue, similarly pubs, right? Close. So they're not, they're not nothing. Uh, and that will probably hurt or definitely hurt those sales off-premise. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've seen the, the phrase day drinking, way too often in my social media feeds in the last couple of weeks. I think uh, people are having a bit of fun and maybe maybe even having a cheeky wine or two earlier than they otherwise might if they were actually at work. Uh, but uh, cabin fever does these things. So I think, look, I don't know how it affects treasury. Let's be really honest. So predicting, speculating now is, is necessarily difficult. Um, it's also worth saying treasury's portfolio is generally or the value, the, the, their money-making portfolio is more expensive. So whether people keep drinking Canungi Hill is a different question to whether people keep drinking Grange, right? And that's a question that we don't know the answer to either. And we, so we can't really know the direction. What I would say is I'm cautiously hopeful that they're at least able to maintain volumes through this time because of their broad range of uh, offerings. I'm also not overly worried about 
I'm a long-term investor by nature, and I've said before that's a that's a tautology that David Gardner, our co-founder, will give me a dead arm for saying because all investing should be long-term investing. As an investor, I am looking through this anyway, and kind of you know, will more Treasury wines be drunk in three, five, and seven years than today? Yes, I think they will. I think that's good news for the business. So that's why I own the shares. I'm not, I don't own them or not own them because of what I expect in the next few months. Um, the share price has been hurt, and the U.S. business has been badly run, really clearly. Um, the news today about emerging penfolds is really fascinating. I would have much rather than see them divest their US business altogether rather than an individual brand. I think individual brands are, I feel like this is more financial engineering than, than genuine company management. And maybe that's, maybe that's unfair, um, but I'd rather than keep the, keep the, keep the brands together and just sell off the US region that just has been a, a bit of a basket case for them operationally. All that said, uh, I expect alcohol sales to increase over this period of time. I do think treasury is more likely than not to get a share of that increase, but there may be the sting in the tail that people drink much less expensive wine uh, or down trade, which is not great for Penfolds uh, and for Treasuries more broadly, uh, profit margins. So just be, be a little bit mindful of that. But the bigger, the bigger answer, honestly, mate, is I'm not worried about the, the short-term impact on Treasuries business. If more people are drinking Grange, Canunga Hill, Wins, Lindemans in, in five years from they are today, that's the, that's the story for me. And again, part of that story is also export. It's not just Australians, but it's the rest of the world and in particular China. So I'm, I'm bullish. I think we'll look back in 2030 and, and realise that we should have expected the trend to continue. Uh, wine exports to China from Australia are up like 20% and by price are up like 40% because they're buying more expensive wines. And again, that could turn around in the short term, but I think the long term is pretty bright. Any thoughts on that, Doc? No, sir. I have nothing to add. Beautiful. Thank you for the question, Fletcher. Uh, and maybe I'll let you buy me a drink in Hobart. Maybe I'll, we'll, have a, we'll have a glass of Penfolds, perhaps. All right. Uh, question, mate, from Alex. Alex is a podcast question. Alex, I'm an EO subscriber in the past 12 months and listener of the podcast in the last four months. I love both. And then you can see the hashtag as well as I can. Doc, he says, hashtag get Doc on Insta. That's two. I'm in my 30s and have an industry super fund that has a spread of higher risk e.g. 5% in cash, 35% in high growth. Two questions. First, given the current market, my age and my like for high risk, is it worthwhile to place almost all into a high growth stream? Start there, mate. Someone who's young is risk tolerant by his own assessment. Should he be putting more of his assets into, or his super assets, into the growth premixed uh, option? Yeah, I, like, I mean, again, this is a, this is again a personal thing, right? How much uh, risk tolerance you have? Um, yeah. you, you know, the, the, by definition, if you are younger, then you have longer for compounding. So you are, you know, you can, you know, the higher risk it comes with higher returns typically. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would take that option. That would be my choice. But again, I think you have to be individually. You know, you have to be comfortable that it'll come with volatility and things like that. Yeah, I think I completely agree, mate. I think as as any anyone listening to us needs to know their own risk tolerance, and more importantly, risk tolerance I think is a misnomer. They need to know their volatility tolerance, right? I have a very, very, very high level of conviction. There's no guarantees in life, as you as you mentioned on Friday, and no guarantees in life. But I have a very high conviction that a growth portfolio beats a balanced or conservative portfolio over 40 years. It's it's just it's short short of some massive permanent financial dislocation, which is always possible, but very very unlikely. Um, I think the reality is that there's there's almost zero. I mean, it's not it's not exactly zero. Of course, it can't be, but there's a very 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 small possibility that high growth doesn't beat everything else. But it's going to be more volatile on the way through. And as an investor, you need to decide for yourself simply: Am I prepared for more down years, more really crappy times like March <laughs> this year? Um, am I prepared to accept that? to maximize my returns if you are, and I think you should be at 30 um, or in your 30s, then absolutely I would say yes for sure, as long as you can genuinely do it. Now, we had another question from Brad on Friday saying, look, I, I had some losses and I sold it, put everything in cash because I just couldn't stem the, oh, yeah, I need to stem the bleeding. I couldn't stand the losses. And if you're that person, then don't go high growth because you'll end up buying high, selling low and doing that repeated times through your investing career. But if you can withstand it, frankly, do it and don't have a look at your super account, right? Just set it up and just, Close the super account, look at it again when you're 63, right? A couple of years for retirement, see how much you got there, and you'd be pleasantly surprised. Any more on that, Doc? No, I think that, that, that that's really it, yeah. Alex had a second question, mate. He says, I've noticed for my super fund, the high growth category isn't really high risk, given the companies it's invested in. What are your thoughts generally on SMSFs? How much super would you recommend as a balance before contemplating it, given the maintenance costs? 
Now, you've got an SMSF, mate. I think you know, I've got an SMSF. Your mm -hmm. thoughts generally on them and then what sort of balance Alex should be looking for? Yeah, like, so, so I'll answer also this, this question that, you know, the high growth isn't, doesn't look like high risk. I, yeah. I, 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 the reason I want to answer that is sometimes you can get high growth, which doesn't have to be high risk, right? So, I mean, mm. uh, you know, not all high growth is higher risk, but yeah, they are generally tend to be on the higher risk spectrum. So, but I don't know what those companies are. And, and uh, he's probably looked at them and decided that they're probably not that high growth and not that high risk. <laughs> so uh, it might be a bit of a misnomer. In terms of, so the super, so there's a lot of cost uh, that comes in with the compliance uh, for SMS7. There's compliance for all the right reasons there. Um, my feeling based on, again, uh, is you probably need around 200K to 250K at sort of as a starting point. You can do it for lower amounts, but then the cost is going to be larger as a fraction yeah. of, you know, because you have an audit fee, you have accountant's fee, you have, you know, yeah. So there's... That's just painful, right? There's a lot of paperwork and stuff as well. There's a whole lot of paperwork. <laughs> it's, sometimes you do it and then you think, why did I do it? Because it's oh, like, totally. you know, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. amount of paperwork. And I get it, the paperwork <laughs> is all there for the right reason. So my, my, yeah. my, my rule of thumb sort of is that you know, at maybe the 200K mark, it, the cost is uh, small enough to justify it, but sometimes it can be done for a little bit less than that because um, just because, you know, you have a strategy, you're going to be building it over time. So maybe, you know, you set it up now and, and uh, you build it over time. And yeah, so those would be my sort of ballpark estimates. Yeah, no, so I've, I've seen as low as 100 grand and I think Dr. Pens to some degree. It also... If you think you're going to invest it, you're doing it because you want to invest in higher return assets that sometimes you can pay for some of the fee with the higher return. So there is something there. But again, be mindful, as I've said before, and I got pulled up on it last week, the, the median driver, as opposed to the average driver, uh, the median driver, everyone thinks they're better than average, right? And so um, just, just be a little bit careful with with the assumption of the returns you're going to get that may or may not justify an SMSF. I'm going to say something a bit controversial. Right? I think too many people have SMSFs. Um, I think they're wonderful tools to be used by the right people for the right reasons. Um, you said on Friday a lot of people are doing it to get to buy property. I think it's a terrible idea. Um, uh, these days with industry funds that give you kind of discretionary access, you can actually choose which stocks you want to buy, normally in the ASX 200. Um, in, a, in, a, in a current super fund structure, you may be able to get the best of both. Worlds. You can pick your own stocks and save yourself the, the cost and hassle of the paperwork. So there are different ways of doing it. I I get it. The other thing I would say, only after you made a point, Doc, about what is high risk and what's not, I think they, we have the same problem. Members ask us all the time, you know, how do you define risk, high, medium, low? And it's kind of relative, right? Like high risk in a super fund is a lot of money in shares. It may be, rereading Alex's question, that he's thinking high risk is, you know, the small speculative mining stocks that are high risk. They're, they're, they're both called high risk, right, in different contexts, but they are miles apart. From a super perspective, buying shares in Woolies and Coles as part of a, you know, 40% of your portfolio in Australian shares is a high risk investment option, pre-mixed option, because higher risk than property in their view, high risk than bonds, high risk than cash. And so at some point that would say that's a high risk or, you know, a higher growth portfolio. If someone who was already in shares and had, you know, a group of a group of speculative mining stocks at a two cents a share, that's high risk in, in a shares context but a very, very, very different assessment of risk. So the base matters a lot. Um, so look, I would I would move slowly to SMSF. Do it if it's right for you. Do it if the costs make sense. But don't rush for the sake of it. What I'd look at, you're in an industry fund. I'm pretty sure you can choose a self-directed investment option within that fund. As a very first port of call, I'd start there. If it's working for you and if you like it and you're successful at it, then by all means think about SMSF as your balance grows. Also be really mindful. It's not for everybody, right? You might find that you're simply not very good or you don't, you know, you're not getting the returns you want investing directly, you may be better off going back to one of those premixed options, letting someone else do it for you. And as I always say, just go fishing. Absolutely. Any more for that, mate? No, I think that's good. Great. Question from Edward. He's asked us a question before, new one. Hi, Scott and Doc. I asked a question a while back in regards to my high percentage dedicated to banks. I started to sell off some, although I still have a large percentage of my portfolio held in banks. Since I'm quite young and the current situation that is happening should I continue to sell off at a loss in the current market? Now, again, Edward, we can't tell you what you should do. Uh, Doc, we spoke a lot about banks on Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, if someone had a decent portion of their portfolio in banks, what would you do if you were them? Well, like, you know, so here's the thing, right? If you have a decent portion of your portfolio in banks, it's actually not diversified. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, you could own four different banks, but that's basically just banks. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Basically banks, and it's, you know, Australian banks are mostly, like in the big four, are basically retail banks. Yep. So, so it's not just banks, but it's just retail banking exposure, which indirectly is exposure to property market and things like that. So it's not diversification. I would, you know, personally, if I owned a lot of bank shares, I would be selling, um, I would have been selling long ago, as I've been saying for a long time, uh, just to diversify. Because, I mean, you know, having some shares to get some earning via, uh, you know, a franked dividends makes sense. But again, it's it's just not diversification in that, that uh, in, in that sense. So, um, yeah, I don't like the banks in the current environment, um, but I have not liked the banks for a long time. So, so would you keep selling them, mate? Yeah, I would. I mean, you know, I would reduce my. If I had a lot of bank shares, I would be reducing and looking to diversify. Mm. Um, and and if especially if I'm if if I'm a young person, I've got many 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 years of investment ahead of me, then I would be looking to buy growth stocks. The so banks are anything but growth. Right, <laughs> you know, there's only so much you know the banks can grow at. Right? There are four banks all fighting for over the same number of people, right? And our population grows at like less than two percent, right? Um, it, it, you know, there's there's so there's only so much that the banks can grow mm-hmm. because there's a, there's only so much of the pie that they, they're all fighting with each other for market share, effectively, right? <laughs> so I don't I don't know. I would go for other growth companies. That would be my preference, but. That's what I do. Sure. Yep. Right, well, so I'm going to give it. I'm going to the same answer from a different perspective, mate. I think even if you're looking for income, so if you're looking for growth, banks aren't absolutely where they're at. I completely agree. Um, they're a little bit like Woolies and Coles, right? They, they grew through the 80s and 90s largely by consolidation, um, and then some of they took on new bits of business. But that's that was. So you know, you go from being. I mean, Woolies and Coles were each 20% of the market at one point. And now together, they're probably 85% of the market depending on the category. Banks are exactly the same. The banks, the big banks are probably 85%, almost exactly the same numbers, I think, of of the Australian banking market. And the banking market's not growing that much. Now, CBA bought Bank West and Westpac bought St. George. And I mean, they, were, they, were, they grew by acquisition and, and they bought wealth management business, sold them off. But once that's over, as you say, mate, you're then back to system growth. System growth is going to not be that high. It's probably going to decline for a while. Then it's not going to be that high after that. So I don't think... The banks are a great place for growth. I also, though, don't think they're a great place for income. Now, as we've already said, on, on Wednesday of this week, and we're recording this on Wednesday morning, this isn't going out live until Sunday, but uh, Tuesday night, the APRA announced, the Prudential Regulation Authority, that banks were going to have to stop or materially reduce their dividends. Um, wasn't a surprise to us. Now, we didn't exactly forecast it entirely, but we knew it was possible, maybe even probable. Um, so that's going to happen. Income-wise, that's going to make it a tough little while. And again, if you, even if you want income, you want some growth in that income. And so unless you're only, you know, I can't imagine a scenario where you just say, look, I'll take whatever I can get now and I don't want any growth in that. Maybe I want some decline in that. Um, but I, I mean, maybe that's some people. Generally speaking, I think it's not the best idea. And even if you do, uh, we have NAB and MyState in one of our uh, portfolios, at least at the time of writing, time of speaking. Um they are together less than I think less than seven percent or something of our of that income portfolio. It's the only service we have them in, and it's specifically for part of that income. But that even that seven percent is you know about as much as you want. So I understand people have been successful. I understand the the common wisdom is banks always make money because people look back at the last thirty years and say look what they've done. You, people often forget, and the people who are telling the story never remember or never choose to say uh, that the conditions that let that growth happen simply don't exist anymore. You can't you can't extrapolate that forever. The, the Australian population is not going to be 200 million people anytime soon. There's no more banks to buy. Um, the, the government won't let them do that. So there's a lot of cost to come out. Maybe they close some branches. Maybe there's one more round of cost cutting they can kind of get away with by cutting branches. But at some point, these become very pedestrian businesses. And if you're trying to compound any sort of growth, I just don't think the banks are where it's at. I don't like how people have been more than... Gee, I, I don't know what number I picked, Doc. I'd say less than 10% in a portfolio at an absolute maximum now. If you've already got 60% and you've got 40 years worth of capital gains, there may be some different considerations as to what you sell or not. That being said, when the banks were two or three times the current share prices, um, it would have been better off paying the tax than, than suffering the capital losses, right? So just be careful that you don't let the, the tax tail wag the, wag the capital accumulation dog. I'm yeah. going to assume that's okay, mate. There you go. That Thank is you. fine. <laughs> mate, we're doing pretty well this Zoom thing, just quietly. It so far, so good. Yeah, so far, so good. We're doing our best. Question from Jonah, mate. I have a question for the podcast mailbag. He's coming to the right place. I just started listening a few weeks ago. I'm turning 40, happy birthday, and I've never invested in stocks before. And I'm realizing 
I hope not too late, how important this is for mine and my children's future. I'm enjoying the relaxed nature of the show, thank you, mate, and learning about the culture of investing. Now, he says, you recently touched on the Extended Mailbag podcast, but there are no superannuation-type companies that offer an automated investing platform free from the constraints of superannuation laws. What do you think of Raise, R-A-I-Z, and the style of simple automated investing they offer? Being a noob, that, that's newbie for those of us who are born a little bit after after, uh, after Joanna. Uh, being a noob to the investing scene, this is where I've started investing each week through small deposits and attaching my bank account to automatically deposit my roundups from every transaction. Thanks, Jonah. Uh, so Jonah's getting going, mate. He's using Raise thus far. What do you think of Raise and what other tips have you got for Jonah? Um, so I don't have any specific comments. So Raise, the platform is very similar to the, the Commonwealth Pack Pocket app, right? So basically you can automatically invest, as far as I understand, um, uh, in, in a set number of products would be my guess. Um, I don't have specific views on, on, on that particular platform. I like the idea of regularly investing because that basically is dollar cost averaging, right? So you, that is a fantastic way to invest you know, regularly save and regularly invest. And, yeah. you know, that really becomes a big deal over a long period of time. So I think, you know, the approach is great. Um, I, I don't really have any views on the specifics of the platform. Nice. Yeah, look, I, John, I'm going to say, here's the thing. I think, I think most of these platforms aren't spectacularly great uh, financially. What they are wonderful at is helping you develop a, a habit and a kind of a lifestyle of saving. And so I kind of look at it from two different perspectives. If you were going to say to me, is this, the be- is this the best way to maximize my financial outcomes per day, per week, per year? I'd say, no, absolutely not. The fees they charge are too high. Um, the roundup won't do much for you. Adding automatically is kind of great, but then you can do that with any bank account. So raise isn't necessary. <laughs> um, and and pro- frankly, I, I don't love the, the, the fee structure. Now, all of that said, it's not terrible. And if it helps you develop that habit, then it's worth gold, you know, worth more than gold. In terms of the benefits for you over the next 40 years of your investing career, if this gets you started, then that is just, that is worth, you know, is worth a fortune to you. So I don't want you to, I I wouldn't necessarily say to people, go and definitely do it, but nor would I say, don't do it. I think the roundup thing is a gimmick. I think, you know, if I I round up 50 cents for a coffee once a week, I'm going to have, you know, a couple of bucks at the end of the year. It's it's not, it's not going to, it's not going to change anyone's life, right? It's a nice little gimmick. Again, nice habit not going to change the world. Even their own advertising says, if you round up and then you add this much a week, <laughs> and guess what? The amount you're adding each week is far, far more important than the amount you round up. So it's a nice gimmick. Again, I don't hate it. I, I don't just like it much. It's, it's fine. Um, I would say for most people though, probably Comsec Pocket is one I actually quite, I do quite like. Um, the fees are reasonably small. The investment options are limited, but given the structure of, of what it is, I think it's actually a really nice way to get started in ETFs. So that, that I do have a big wrap on. For, for other people, if you kind of save a decent chunk every week, and I don't know what that is for you, but um, something simple, and again, another Commonwealth Bank product, not because we paid by them, just because I happen to use it. Um, a Comsec uh, investment account, uh, sorry, a brokerage account with a linked Commonwealth Direct Investment account that you can simply put an automated deposit in, what well, does what Raise does anyway, but without the fees. So, you know, if I want to put in, I don't know, 50 bucks a week from my regular savings account to this direct investment account that Comsec have, um, I can do exactly the same thing without the fees and at the rigmarole and then buy shares directly using Comsec as a broker. So I think that's, I think, again, they have most few Comsec products. It's not because we're paid or otherwise incentivized to do so, just because they seem to work. But Comsec Pocket is the best one I've found for meaningful active investment for small amounts. And then a simple investment account, doesn't really Comsec in anyone's, but an investment account separate from your savings account, linked to your brokerage account, so that you keep that money separate and then keep investing it, I think is a great way to get started. Doc, any thoughts? Um, no, no, nothing more to add. Sorry, I was muted. <laughs> One of the traps of Zoom, I've done that more times than I care to, care to say just quietly. Normally on Skype when we're talking as a group, there's that, there's that pregnant pause where I'm talking and I realize no one else can hear me and it's uh, the mute button. All right, mate, we might wrap up with our last question for today, I think from Chris. It is Easter Sunday after all, and we've got Easter eggs to eat. Um, and as we said at the beginning, Easter eggs to buy for our, our special ladies in our lives. <laughs> so we better go and do that. Uh, Chris says, hi, Phil. Love you two blokes and your podcast. Thanks, mate. Thanks for the laughs and the pearls of wisdom. You're doing a great job. Thank you, buddy. I get excited every time I see a new episode and I love listening to you both. If nothing else comes to this, mate, the, the lockdown might help our podcast audience. What do you reckon? Can't hurt, can it? 
Look, we're getting more love out there, so that's cool. <laughs> we like that. All right. As a result, I have definitely become a calmer and wiser investor with a great tolerance for the ups and downs. I 100% agree with what you said about Qantas and that the government should get some shares in Qantas for its donation. We agree. The next few months might be an opportunity for the government to strengthen its portfolio of assets. My question is, when looking at a company, how do you decide what an acceptable level of debt is for a company? Cheers, keep up the great work, and full on, Chris. Love the full on, dude. Thank you very much. So, Doc, this is really, really um, – we learn lessons after the fact often, don't we? And, and <laughs> debt was kind of we kind of paid attention to and figured that, hey, earnings can cover the debt, so it's all okay. The last three months have shown us that all debt isn't equal, nor, nor revenue is equal, unfortunately, particularly if the government shuts down the airports. Um, so when it comes to debt, how do you consider or factor in debt to your investment decisions? Yeah, so I mean, this, this is really a great question, actually, Chris met, and it's a great and a hard question. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it's hard yeah. because, um, you know, during normal circumstances, what you'd see is, you know, some amount of debt is okay. So ideally, if a company actually has no debt, then that's great. <clears throat> because if it, can, if it can actually, you know, if it has raised money from shareholders, so it's taken an equity placement or equity has mm. been raised, and then can generate cash flow from operations and can survive based on that, that is fantastic, right? Now, if you have, you know, but certain types of businesses like Qantas, for example, is going to have debt because, you know, how do you buy, you know, billions of dollars of worth of, you know, uh, new aircraft, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you could lease them, but that is lease obligations uh, or you buy them and you, you know, you've got debt for that. Um, in, in most circumstances, what you would want is you want your earnings to comfortably cover your debts. So now, most of debts would have come with what we would call covenants, which would be exactly that, that you know your earnings have to cover your certain amount of interest in it. Mm. Um, but it gets tricky when you have a shutdown like this, <laughs> because then you have no longer earnings, <laughs> and therefore they're not covered. In, in terms of overall, like what I think I don't like to see is I don't like to see companies that potentially need no debt to actually have debt because, and then the raised debt because debt is cheap, right? And if debt is raised um, at a rate that they can't really, I mean, especially if debt comes with covenant, I don't like that, right? If, if debt just comes with, you know, uh, it's like a revolver where you're paying interest and then paying, you know, the capital at, at some point, then that's that's fine. That's actually, that's like, that's like a bond, a, a bond, and that bond is actually a commercial bond. That's good because you, you know, you're promising people to pay a certain amount of money every cent, and, and then you can compensate for that by having cash. So debt attached with covenants, I am not a big fan of it. That's how most companies actually get into trouble. Debt, yeah. uh, which converts into equity, okay, as long as it has uh, debt that comes against secured assets, is actually okay because people can take all the secured assets, but it doesn't actually impair the company uh, in, in that sense. As long as you know, uh, I mean, you know, if the debt was, for for example, if Qantas's debt is secured against planes, and Qantas doesn't need those planes, well, please be prepared to take those planes. <laughs> take take right? the planes exactly. Take yeah, the yeah. planes. Okay, in fact, Qantas yeah. would be happy. Please take the planes. Right? We, cancel it. Take the planes. We're all happy. Exactly. Yeah. We were yeah. all happy, right? So I, I think debt against secured assets. I like that. <laughs> Uh, debt, unsecured debt is my favorite. <laughs> um, as long as you can pay the interest, you're fine. As long as, and as long as your capital payments are staggered, it's fine. Uh, debt against secured assets would be my next thing. Uh, debt that is, again, secured against nothing but converts into equity at some high share price, that's okay. Debt that has got earnings covenants, I actually dislike them the most uh, because that's where most of the problems happen. Um, yeah, so that's how I think about debt in a company. Um, yeah, and then I prefer, like, you know, just like a household, I prefer that cash be there for at least like six months of operation, maybe a year's operation. If you have years worth of cash, that really puts you in a good position. I realize that it's a waste of cash, but I think this what this incident has taught me is that we don't know what happens and what incidences happen but you know incidences do happen at some frequency every decade or so and you don't want to be in a sport where you know there are ways to mitigate that as, as i said if you have debt have a different type of debt have some cash uh to that's what i how i think about it at least right now 
Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, my answer probably would have been slightly different three months ago compared to now, right? After the after the experience, and that's probably a reminder to all of us that uh, extrapolating too much from recent events is, is, a, is a mistake. It's a well-known psychological bias. I don't mean, by the way, that you're wrong to think about it now. What I mean is in the past, the same thing is also true that we, because nothing had happened recently, we kind of let the guard down a little bit on debt. Um, I So I think the, the how much is too much question is a really good one. I tend to think about debt, not in absolute terms, but in terms of the interest cost, um, particularly if it's a revolving debt, right? If you if you effectively have a, 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 an amount of, and I should start by saying Doc's comments are perfect in terms of covenants and stuff, so I won't go over that. But in terms of the amount of debt, if you're looking at, you know, how many months worth of, of earnings or how many years worth of earnings do I need to cover the, the interest cost or the, the repayment cost, that's the bigger one, right? Because if you're going to say, look, the bank's going to give you $5 million and they're never going to want the money repaid, they're going to keep rolling it over every three years, five years, as long as you keep paying the interest to have access to that, then your biggest yeah, your, your primary concern is, do I have enough revenue and earnings to reliably pay that bill every month when it comes due? And so for me, it's they, they call it interest cover. And it's basically the, the amount of times the earnings covers the interest bill that's due. Now, even saying that, the last few months have taught us that using historical earnings are often isn't safe. And to Doc's point, no debt is the best debt. Um, not having debt at all is, is always the safest thing. You know, it's the, um, as Buffett has said, leverage is the only way a smart guy can go broke. And that's pretty much right, right? If you, any of the companies that are raising debt now, if they'd ever had a couple hundred million dollars on the balance sheet rather than, rather than a whole lot of debt, they probably wouldn't be raising capital. If they did, they'd be at much higher share prices because it wouldn't be a distressed raising a la Reese where they're simply saying, hey, we want to raise some money just in case we can buy something cheap rather than we're raising money to stay in business because we've got too much debt to pay off. So that's, that's always true. Um, so that, that's, that's the first thing in terms of the way we think about debt in, and how much absolute debt, I think there is some element of, as Doc said, what it's used for um, and you want to be used for a productive purpose. Ideally, we, we like capital light businesses, generally businesses that don't require much in the way of fixed assets. So manufacturing facilities and stuff to run, but even more allergic is you don't want to capitalize business with debt, right? There's, there's no, they've got no business taking on debt to buy another business or some other cash flow or in worst case scenarios, consulting businesses that buy other consulting businesses with debt when the consultants can simply walk out the door tomorrow um, is a really, really poor use of debt. So the use of debt is, Dr. Trump alluded to that as well. That's that's what's most valuable to me, most important to me is what are they using it for? How, how valuable is the use of that? Is how sensible is it? In some cases, the reality is, you know, debt is actually better than equity in a lot of ways if you can pay it off because, uh, again, we've talked about capital raisings already this time and on Friday. When you raise capital, when you issue more shares, debt, that's forever. If you if you issue a share now, that share exists in a perpetuity unless the company eventually buys it back. Whereas debt has, in theory, a, a temporary hold on the company. Now, it can be a big deal because the banks can foreclose it. An equity holder can't force the company into administration. A debt holder can, so it's more risky. But if you can do it sensibly, you actually pay it off and end up with a better shareholder outcome than if you used equity the whole way through. So it is a bit of a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, I think the, the conservative, again, I'll go back to that earnings cover, interest cover, the ability to pay that debt or that interest bill, I should say, from a reasonable level of earnings is, is what I'd be looking at first. I, I'm a little more sanguine than Doc on not the impact of the last couple of months, but certainly the foreseeability of the last couple of months. Um, we can all foresee a recession when sales might fall three, five, even 10% over a course of a year. Um, I don't I don't know that I feel particularly critical of anyone who didn't foresee a six-month social isolation lockdown um, and the closure of certain industries, including cafes and, and travel, for example. I don't, I mean, again, hindsight, would we've always had cash for that? I guess, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't feel... So Super, super critical people who didn't simply see that coming because it's if you don't coming if you don't plan for that you, you deserve to lose your job and, and you to hand back your businesses. Um, I don't I'm not too critical of people who didn't see this coming. That being said, the companies that are going to get through this in the best shape are the ones that had cash and were being run conservatively in the first place. So debt for the right uses in the right proportions. I can't again, Doctor Foot made the point about the household. Right, look at it sensibly. Like if it was your company. Would you have that much debt? I mean, that it's. And I know it sounds like a, an obvious question, maybe even a, a cop-out question, but literally it's like, okay, would I feel comfortable if I own this business with the way it's structured? Does that feel like the right approach? If the answer is yes, then you're probably on the right track. If the answer is no, or I'm not sure, then that's a good chance to have a think and say, well, I'm not sure necessarily that it's taking the right decisions when it comes to its own capital. Any more on that, Doc? No, I think that, that covers it. Very good. All that's left, mate, is to, to the usual spiel, but first, to wish our listeners a very happy Easter 
it's a different one this year. We, uh, we're all stuck at home, uh, but hopefully you are enjoying some time with, with friends. Hopefully you get a chance uh, to jump on maybe a, a FaceTime call, as Doc said, or maybe a Zoom call if you're not an Apple devotee. Um, f- find, a way to, find a way to chat with someone. Great, make it, here's our – this is off the cuff, Doc. Uh, I'll say on your behalf, and you can tell me whether you think I'm wrong. Um, go and do what Doc said. Grab a, grab a, a friend, make a phone call, um, jump on a Zoom call, a FaceTime call, or whatever other – particular um if you're still that will apply whatever it is you use make easter sunday the day you give your mates a call say good day jump online maybe open a, a beer maybe even a treasury wine if i can get my own company shares a plug but um just yeah to give social isolation can be tough right i'm an introvert by nature i'm completely okay with it uh, my wife is an extrovert and is having a tough time as are many other people so do yourself a favor do your, do your mates and family a favor give a couple of my call and just uh, say good day wish them happy easter maybe Eat these three together or, or have a glass of wine or maybe a beer. Have a what glass of penholds. <laughs> you use that on me. All right, that wraps us up. But don't forget, you can and should subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a rating on iTunes. Tell your friends. Share a little bit of the Easter love with us. I'm sure it'll help us and I'm sure it'll help your friends and family too. And don't forget, hey, what, about, uh, what about a listening party, Doc? What about a Motley for Money listening party? That would be fantastic, you know. That's something you some... do with friends. There you go. Yeah. Have your Zoom call. Open your glass of wine and then and press play on the Motley Fool Money podcast. Share it with your friends. Promise it'll be fine. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, here, I'm giving you advance warning, Doc. Your part's about to come up here. Don't forget, you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. Happy Easter. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.